Welcome to TNS, the new school at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring nature, culture, and consciousness. Join us now for The Human Predicament, the keynote presentation given by Nate Hagens at the 2019 Resilience Gathering at Commonweal. So now it is my pleasure and honor uh, to introduce our keynote speaker, Nate Hagens. Nate was supposed to speak for 45 minutes, but he tells me it's going to be 48 to 50, and we negotiated this carefully. <laughs> Nate's uh, understanding of these issues is authentically encyclopedic, uh, along with Richard Heinberg and Pete Myers and a handful uh, uh, of other people. Ted Shetler would certainly be on that list. Uh, Nate is uh, one of the most significant uh, national and indeed international authorities working on this. Uh, he uh, currently teaches a system synthesis honors seminar at the University of Minnesota called Reality 101, a survey of the human predicament. He's on the board of the Post Carbon Institute. You'll notice there are a lot of linkages among us all here. Um, uh, and the Institute for the Study of Energy and the Future. Previously, he was the lead editor of The Oil Drum, and, uh, which is one of the most popular and respected websites. He's appeared on PBS, BBC, ABC, and NPR. And uh, previously, he was the president of Sanctuary Asset Management and a vice president at the investment firms Salomon Brothers and Lehman Brothers. So with that, I turn the podium over to my friend and colleague, Nate Higgins. Nate? We're going from the elevator speech to the dungeon speech. No, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. Um, so what I've tried to do the last uh, 20 years is understand the whole uh, predicament, the whole story, how everything fits together. So um, I made a six-hour series of videos that does that. I'm going to condense that into 45 minutes uh, today. Um, I agree with Michael that the time now is not, we need to go beyond renewables, beyond climate change, and we're approaching a species level story. We are interacting with each other and the planet in uh, deleterious, uh, emergent ways, and everything does fit together. So I'm going to tell a story today of how things fit together, and the last 15 minutes will be some suggestions on what to do as a culture, what to do as a community, what to do as individuals. Uh, and then we're gonna have time before lunch for, for discussions. Um, okay, so when we talk about what to do about the future, the future is a series of stepping stones. What does 2050 look like? I can envision healthy, happy humans coexisting with nature. What does the Bay Area in Northern San Francisco look like? And that itself is a stepping stone to much longer periods hundreds of years in the future, where human uh, descendants coexist with other megafauna, um, elephants, hummingbirds, dolphins, etc. Those futures now are possible, but they are at risk. And I'm gonna kind of explain how everything fits together. So the 20th century, we had 100 years of converging trends. More and cheaper resources led to productivity and growth. Uh, credit enabled uh, global economies to access more resources. We had uh, fiscal surpluses, which enabled uh, peaceful and diverse societies. 
and environmental externalities were mostly local or too distant and invisible to be recognized. But this century has been uh, trends going in the opposite direction. Energy and resources are again becoming constraining factors in economic and societal development. Physical expansion of credit, which I'm gonna talk quite a bit about, is becoming riskier and it will eventually reach a limit. Um, the environment, now everyone is aware that we have widespread ecological impacts on species, um, biogeochemistry, climate and oceans. And societies are drifting further apart, uh, losing shared values and common ground, as can be seen by the populist elections around the world. So economically, uh, from 2009 to 2014, our economy grew at uh, several percent, but 105% of the growth went to the top 10% of our citizens. So the economy grew, but it wasn't shared by everyone. So the majority of people uh, only the top 5% have had increasing growth. This has gotten a little bit better since 2014, but still, for most people, growth has ended um, as a combination of their income versus their expenses. Additionally, this wealth inequality shown by this Gini coefficient, the blue, is mirrored with the polarization in our political discussions in this country. So I'll get more into the economy a little bit later, but the economy, what we hear about on NPR and in the news, is measured by the stock market. And the stock market is near all-time highs. But that's just the financial representations of the stock market. Our real stock market, which is the 10 million plus species we share the planet with, the 5,500 mammal species we share the planet with, our ecosystems, is crashing. And I'm gonna just give a very quick overview about this because I care a lot about it. If you take the mammalian biomass on the planet, 96% is humans and our livestock. So 4% are uh, wild animals, and if you exclude whales and other cetaceans in the ocean, only 2% are wild land animals. Populations of vertebrate creatures on Earth are down 52% since around when I was born. What an amazingly tragic thing to say to a group of people. Um, but this is true. Of the birds uh, uh, alive on the planet, 70% are chickens and turkeys. Only 30% are wild birds. Wild birds are dropping um, in population, uh, especially the insectivores, um, and that's because insects are also declining. Recent estimates are the biomass of insects is declining 2.5% a year uh, right now. Um, and that has a lot of Drivers, pesticides, things we don't even understand. One of the things we don't understand is the byproduct of a lot of our household products is phthalates, which break down and are, become airborne. And they've studied ant colonies in the Amazon and remote places in Africa that all the ants, regardless of how close they were to human settlements, had measurements of phthalates. So our plastics are not only seen, but they're invisible and impacting other areas of the earth. You've all heard about the plastics in the ocean. There's over five trillion pieces of plastic in the ocean. By 2050, the weight of plastic in the ocean under business as usual will outweigh the weight of all the fish. Um, many of you are aware of these statistics. This is the last 450,000 years. This is sea level. Uh, this is global temperature. And on the top is the CO2 concentration and we're in uncharted territory because of the spike coming from burning of, of fossil carbon. Uh, of note here is sea level is already up 400 feet from 20,000 years ago, which not a lot of people know. 
Oceans, not only is there ocean acidification and some of the risk I already mentioned, ocean has many other risks as a result of our activities. Uh, one is that ocean oxygen content is down 2% since 1970. And that's an average. In the shallow waters, it's down significantly more. Um, so all of this as one part of uh, the human predicament is that you know, we are at the early stages of what's possibly the sixth great mass extinction of animal life on the planet. This is tragic. I'm gonna talk about how this fits in because in order to diagnose the patient, we have to have the correct diagnosis before we know what to do. And I'm gonna try and fit this into a narrative on how everything fits together. It's one of these classic battle stories of Godzilla versus King Kong or David and Goliath or other familiar things. And now we get to the blob in Los Angeles, which is getting closer to the story I'm gonna tell. This is the Borg versus Earth, which is even closer. I'm gonna talk about Earth versus humanity acting as an energy-hungry superorganism, which I refer to as an amoeba. So there are two predominant cultural narratives we have today in this country. A Green New Deal, where we migrate energy systems to 100% renewables, work towards zero emissions. Or business as usual, there's nothing wrong with our past model, there's no shortages of anything, we need to deregulate and reduce taxes. What I'm gonna talk about today is how human behavior, fossil carbon, money, create an emergent pr property of all 7.7 .7 billion of us acting in this way that we don't intend, but it has emergent impacts, and it informs the chessboard of what we can do about it in the future. Okay, briefly, some review. Ecology, in nature, energy is everything. Energy surplus of an organism enables what it can do with its metabolism, mating, survival, recovery, etc. If a cheetah chased a gazelle uh, and didn't get enough calories from the gazelle to pay off its pursuit, it would, it would die. Uh, this is all the way through nature. Energy capture in nature, organisms and ecosystems self-organize so as to better degrade an energy gradient. A live oak tree, which you have a lot of in this area, the leaves aren't 10 billion leaves or not just one leaf. The leaves are grown in a way so as to maximize the surface area to degrade as much sunlight as the, the surface of the tree can. So this process in nature um, has parallels to the human sphere. So human behavior. Humans are mammals. We're also primates. We're part of a grand tree of life. We're related to everything. Our cousins, nieces, nephews in nature, we're, we, we share DNA with everything that's alive. So this historical process that led us to be here today, I, I summarize into the agenda of the gene. It's not a direct agenda, but what we do is we execute adaptations. We have a preformed brain from our evolutionary past that we wake up in today's world and we try to get the same feelings, the same neurotransmitters, the same endocrine cascade of experience that our successful ancestors did in a novel environment. Uh, back in the savanna, we were hunting and that dopamine spurt when we got, uh, saw an antelope or whatever led to, correlated to success in our tribe and survival. Now, when you do a stock trade and you get a winning trade on a functional MRI machine, the same exact area lights up in our brain. 
We are hunter-gatherers in a novel environment. There's also this novelty can hijack our brains. So the video games today, this is Fortnite, a very popular uh, you know, video game where you compete with 100 other people and there's only one champion. You, your brain is feeling like you are a successful hunter, but your body is sitting on a couch with a bunch of empty pizza boxes. So our brains are being tricked into thinking these things are healthy and relevant to our success. Another thing that's very unique to our species is our ultra-sociality. We are extremely social. We're not solitary organisms like a cheetah or a leopard. We are a social organism. We very much care about what others think about us and part of the social situation. We don't care about absolute wealth so much as we compare about relative status keeping up with the Joneses. We're constantly comparing ourselves by the dictates of our culture and our marketing. And we are biological organisms with finite lifespans. And for that and many other reasons, we immensely care about the present more than the future. The future, we can use our neocortex, our intelligent brain to think about and to imagine the future. But emotionally, behaviorally, we are still mammals that react to today. We care about today much more than tomorrow, tomorrow more than next week. And so we have this inherent time bias, which is a mismatch to some of these challenges that Michael introduced. Okay, energy. Energy is the big topic that is not often discussed. In fact, uh, I made a video series for my students called Energy Blindness. Our culture is energy blind. We think of our progress in terms of money and technology, we don't realize how energy underpins everything in our modern civilization. A few hundred years ago, we puzzled out how to extract fossil carbon that had been compressed, heated, and stored, and refined over hundreds of millions of years. We're pulling that carbon out 10 million times faster than it was sequestered, and it's powering our modern society. This is me on a farm. I have some new socks since this picture was taken. But I'm about one-eighth of a horse. And this is my horse, Binga, who's one horse. And this is my utility vehicle, which does the work of 45 horses. And this is my truck, which a little bit of diesel fuel, it can do the work, rain or shine, snow, uphill, downhill, mud, it can do the work of 150 horses because of this energy-dense fuel, which we pay $60 a barrel for. And yet, it, we do one barrel of oil at $60, does four and a half years of my work, okay? That's something that's not taught in the best business schools of the world. Why? Because all we have to pay for is the extraction, how to find it and pull it out of the ground. We don't pay for the creation nor the pollution from this substance. And by the way, some of you took, like me, took a flight here. A flight is of 100,000 horses for whatever the length of the flight is. That's the energetic equivalent. So this is a, the most complicated graph of my talk, um, but I think it's important. There are, the, the story of industrialization of one of replacing what humans used to do manually with machines powered by fossil energy. So I live in Wisconsin and cow milking is a big industry. So we could manually milk a cow. Um, uh, let's just look at the blue, the blue lines first. So if you manually milk a cow, you can make $5 an hour. Um, 
If you use a technology to milk a cow with a lot of machinery and, and electricity, you need far less human labor and you can make $20 an hour because you're adding 300 times more energy. And these automated milking machines, you use 800 times the energy and you can make $25 an hour or consumers have cheaper milk or the factory owner earns more or the wage workers earn more, etc. So what we've done is re replaced what humans did with vast amounts of this incredibly cheap fossil carbon from the blue to this blue. Now, what happens when prices double from five cents to 10 cents? Well, in the manual example, nothing happens. In the intermediate energy example, you have a slight reduction in profits. In the heavy energy intensive example, you have a big drop in profits. And if energy prices triple, nothing happens in this example. Another decline in the example of intermediate but you have a massive loss now. It's no longer profitable to use a very energy intensive industrial process. This example is milking, but there's lots of other things like cement manufacture, aluminum, uh, aircraft. So things are very sensitive to the price of, of energy. The energy scale is another story that we don't pay attention to. This is the energy use of all humans the last 200 years, this brown in the bottom is biomass, the gray is coal, then oil, natural gas, uh, hydroelectric, nuclear, and this little sliver on the top is uh, so-called renewables. This history of the last couple centuries is an anomaly in human history, is one of using more and more energy every year except for recessions. So this is something we don't think about. This coal, oil, and natural gas, I told you that one barrel of oil is four and a half years of my work. Humanity uses 100 billion barrels of oil, coal, and natural gas equivalent per year. So that's 500 billion human workers we have versus 4 billion actual human workers in labor energy equivalent. That is the subsidy from this fossil carbon that allows us all to be in this beautiful place that fly here and electricity and great food and things like that. This is supporting our civilization. The energy benefits, our human economy have increased by a factor of 100 in the last 200 years. And population times consumption has increased by a factor of 500 in the last 500 years. So energy is required for every single aspect of our economic system. Every good and service requires an energy input. This, these little circles are the data plots of how much the world uses in energy versus how much our GDP is. And over the last 80 years, it's been between 98.5 and 100% correlated. Average around 99.5% correlated. You got more GDP, you need more energy. Okay, money is also very important. Money comes into existence by commercial banks making a loan to a creditworthy borrower. At that moment, the bank's assets go up, your account goes up, but no reference to energy and natural resources in the world changed. This is also not what's not taught in business schools. There is nothing physical underpinning the money creation in our world. There used to be and before 1970, but now there's not. And so when we issue credit, credit is pulling, is keeping the world afloat right now. It's like a magic wand accelerant to allow us to spend more today 
and kicking the can in the future. I'm gonna talk more about that a little later. So this shows that every, since, every year since I've been alive, since most of you have been alive, we've grown the size of our debt as a, as a nation and as a world more than we've grown the size of our economy. As an individual running a household, you could never do that for too long because the bank would eventually say, no, I'm sorry, I really like you, but I'm not gonna loan you any more money. So this red line shows the total debt in the world, and this green line shows the total GDP. Okay, so energy depletion. These two graphs are the same graphs, but I've broken them out into different pieces. This is the narrative we hear in the news about this amazing substance, oil, that's powering our economies. We overcame depletion with technology. We just pierced the 1970 peak in, North, in the United States, and there is no resource problem. We have plenty of energy. We are now outsurpassing Saudi Arabia and, and um, Russia, okay? True, but here it is broken out. The lower conventional states, which is conventional crude oil in the lower 48. This is Alaska, which isn't even contiguous to the United States. We started to drill in the North Slope up there, also depleting. This is offshore oil in the oceans around the United States. And then this is called light tight oil, which you've heard about shale oil and the Bakken, the Permian, et cetera. This is very energetic and environmentally costly. It costs over $50 a barrel to extract. It is, depletes very rapidly, around 80% of the eventual oil in a, in a well will deplete in the first 18 months. Um, the energy cost to extract oil in America is up 350% since 2002. So yes, there is oil there, but it's much, much more costly. Energetic remoteness, looking back to the example on cow milking, is as energy gets more expensive, everything in society gets more expensive. This is a graph showing the, um, the blue is the amount of copper ore extracted in the country of Chile, which is where most of our copper comes from, and the red is how much energy they use to get the copper. So we are getting a lot of copper. There's plenty of copper left. There's plenty of all kinds of things left, but we're using more and more energy to get it. So effectively, we are energy blind as a culture. This is the standard uh, circular economy model taught in Economics 101. Households demand things, uh, industry and corporations uh, produce them, they pay money, they build more, and it extracts. We conflate the dollar value of energy, which is very small, with the work value of energy, which is very large, and we don't include the cost of wrecking the oceans and the biosphere. So we ignore the source and the sink of this. So keep this in mind as I continue on. So what happened? How does this fit together? So um, this is uh, the last 20,000 years. We had this, uh, um, this is the last 10,000 years. We evolved from the agricultural revolution. We had no fewer than seven places on earth. Humans stopped hunter-gathering because the climate warmed and we were able to start agriculture and from that, we slung shot all the way to here. Um, and if you think about the agenda of the gene, in your own life or people you know, which would they prefer? A temperature of 10 degrees, 65, 110. You want to be poor or rich? You want zero children greater than zero. 
Dial-up DSL, broadband, 5G. You need to be in town 100 miles away, drive car, take a bus or bicycle. Preferred to be viewed as more or less successful than one's neighbor. Care about how your life is in 2019 or 2029. Prefer to win wars or lose wars. Generally, we are after these experiences and feelings that are tethered to energy. Most of these things require access to energy. Okay, so big picture. Back in the day, this is, uh, uh, you know, several hundred years ago, our, our ancestors used technology in soil and wood and animals and created some sort of a sustainable level of, of flows. And then we came across fossil carbon. Um, fossil carbon is non-replenishable on human timescales. So it generally, things that are depletable follow a, a logistic curve that kind of looks like a normal curve. And um, that's where we transfer to. We started to use more. And we're uh, measuring all this by financial markers. Okay, so we have these three things going on. So early economists, if you, if you put all these graphs together, early economists did understand the importance of resource productivity. They had that in the models. But all of a sudden, we started to grow much faster than people expected. And so they attributed that to human technology and ingenuity, not to access to energy. So that this all get parsed by economists who are advisors to all the important people in the world today as uh, technology, uh, capital and labor. Energy is not in any of the main formulas describing our wealth. So then we started to add this magic wand of more and more credit to accelerate on that black line. So our society now views the world solely through a financial lens. Not only have we financialized the human experience, but we've also financialized the explanation of it. And so what we're doing is trying to continue growth this red line by really accelerating credit and the creation of money from nothing with this magic wand. Okay, so using credit, a few more words on that, pulls consumption forward in time. It would be as if a helicopter with billions of dollars flew over San Francisco, everyone would be diving in the streets to go fill their backpacks with money, and then they would go spend it and take a vacation or buy a new car or buy a, a house or something like that. All those things, our calls on coal, oil, natural gas, and resources. So when we create money, we don't create commensurate resources. So this, imagine this is an oil field with no debt and it rises and declines. And here with debt, we get more oil because we're so smart, we got more oil out of the ground, but at a cost of a sharper decline at the end because we're, um, we're, we're pulling what we normally would have used 10 or 20 years from now out today. And uh, credit via central banks, et cetera, also pulls carbon forward in time. You know, not only economic growth, we can talk about that a little later. I'm gonna skip that for now. Um, okay, so you've seen starlings in nature. It's like a blackbird. Starlings follow, as individuals, three simple rules. Do what your neighbors do, don't get too close, and fly towards the center. And there is an emergent property of starlings that create what's called a murmuration and these beautiful shapes in the sky. Humans are also following three simple rules. Coordinate with others towards acquiring surplus, measured by money but linked to energy. Pursue culturally accepted behaviors and spend your surplus on fun 
available things. The emergent property of humans is we've created this global transportation consumption infrastructure where the transportation lines of trucks, airplanes, cars, etc., function like the arteries and veins of a biological organism. If you look at a night picture of one of our major cities and the brake lights and the headlights of cars on the highways, it looks very much like the veins and arteries of a biological organism because it is. The hemoglobin of our modern culture is oil and diesel functioning to, for this throughput. There's something in nature called Kleber's Law, which shows that the mass or the, the energy use of a biological organism uh, is the mass of the organism to the three-quarter power. This same law holds in the global economy. It's around exactly the same thing, R squared of 0.76. We eat power like an animal eats food. So the, the result of all this is humans in aggregate are functioning like this blind, hungry, non-planning, energy-eating superorganism, which starts to tie these things together. So what are the implications? What does this mean that this is happening? Well, first of all, the United States and the United Kingdom and a few other economies are becoming less energy intensive because we're becoming more service oriented. But globally, we've outsourced a lot of our energy infrastructure to other countries. Just the heavy industry in China alone uses almost as much energy as the entire United States because they make things for everyone. So we might not call this GWP, not gross world product, it effectively could be called gross world burning. We all pursue this thing called GDP or globally GWP. The most effective description of it is it's a measure of how much energy our society uses. Every single good or service in this room or in the last week that you've used in your own life started with a little fire somewhere on the planet. You're listening to a TNS presentation of the keynote address at the 2019 Resilience Gathering at Commonweal. Number two, culturally, selection pressure favors the less sustainable models. If you wanted to, as a country, as a city, as a county, as a state, if you wanted to leave the superorganism, you would be selected against as other uh, entities would have gotten bigger and had more access to energy. Number three, behaviorally, global human societies functions using simple behavioral tropisms like an amoeba. The larger the group of people, the less able we are to depart from this gene agenda tethered to energy. And the implication of that is there is no one driving the bus. There's not this group of billionaires or clever politicians that are saying, you know what, humanity needs to go this way. Because they're all responding to this hierarchy of social response that gives us access to more experiences tethered to energy. Number five, issues like population, climate change, ocean acidification are not the problems, but they are symptoms of human economies optimizing GDP, which is correlated with carbon and energy. So many of the environmental issues we face are a byproduct of this energy metabolism, which is why they've been getting worse, not better. Asking voters to keep carbon in the ground is behaviorally similar to arguing with a forest fire. I want to make a key distinction there. So some of our environmental problems are directly linked to the metabolism, the size and scale of the global human economy. Because we're going to burn energy, it's linked to carbon, that is going to be linked to 
these metabolic changes. Insect loss, plastics, some of these things are not directly linked to this metabolism. We can uh, politically demonstrate Europe is already banning uh, single-use plastics. Uh, Yao Ming in China is, uh, has a viral campaign to socially shame people who buy ivory or shark fins, and things like that can change. But the real biggies, the, uh, the climate change and ocean issues, are going to be tethered to the size of the human economy. So getting back to this graph, all key decision makers in the world are expecting this black line as our future reality. And we're using the black line and the stories that support it to temporarily increase the red line. There is no credible institution or government body or corporation globally specifically planning for an end to economic growth, despite growth being over for 80% of the citizenry in the developed world. And the main way we're accessing energy today is via credit markets. The blue line shows the year-over-year -year growth in GDP, and the red line is year-over-year -year growth globally in credit. So we're now at 350% debt to GDP globally. As an individual, if you made 50 grand a year and you owed the bank $175,000 plus interest, you would have a problem. But as a global economic system, we're just like, hey, everything's fine so far. Um, so as long as we can increase credit, we will continue to grow. And when we can't increase credit, we won't continue to grow. And I think that moment is coming in the next decade. So under, uh, briefly, we'll talk uh, about how do renewables fit in here. Under current cultural guidelines, we can only add energy to our system, not subtract. Okay, so the gray line is the year-over-year -year fossil carbon increase globally, and the green is renewable energy increase globally. So re rebuildable energy, renewables, are currently merely making fossil carbon more efficient. We're growing the whole system. So from that perspective, from the perspective of the amoeba, the superorganism, um, adding more solar and wind is great, but we're just building a bigger system. Okay, so when we talk about stochastic technology, renewables, most of the conversations in the world are how to replace fossil fuels and go continue to grow using renewables. The reality is that can't happen. We need fossil carbon to, in, to build out renewables, et cetera. So at some scale, I don't know what it is, we need to be having that conversation. That is not a conversation we're having. So what we're doing as a culture is kicking the can uh, this has some biological and cultural explanations. We're acting like a superorganism. We are now growth constrained and will kick any and all cans forward to keep growth going. What happens when we've kicked the can as far as it will go and it's blocking the road? The social and economic recalibrations related to this are gonna change everything. Okay, so under this framing of humans acting as a superorganism, what is not likely to happen? Growing the economy and mitigating climate change is not likely to happen. Growing the economy by replacing fossil carbon with renewables, not likely to happen. Humans en masse choosing to leave fossil carbon, those 500 billion helpers we have in the ground, not likely to happen. Governments embracing limits to growth before limits to growth are well past, not likely to happen. What is likely to happen? Well, we could make some predictions. We're gonna grow the gross amount of energy uh, via various technologies that promise creation of energy, but the net amount, after we subtract the cost of the creation of the energy or the large complicated investments, will de decline. 
modern monetary theory, you're going to hear a lot about that before the 2020 election. We're going to print money, the government, to build infrastructure and things like that. But printing money is not tethered to resources. It's another way to keep our, our cake and eat it too today and conceive of eating it in the future. Universal basic income is going to be another thing. We have to support the lower half of society. How are we going to do that? We're going to print money to make sure that they're taken care of. Universal basic income is going to be a big response. Um, populism. Uh, less environmental regulations. Look at what's happening with Bolsonaro in Brazil. They're taking down more rainforests to grow soybeans. These are the natural responses one can expect from this dynamic. That doesn't mean they're going to happen or we should want them to happen, uh, but this is what's going to happen. Pedal to the metal until we hit a wall. So the choreography, the probability distribution of the future, I do not know what the future will be. I'm highly confident about what some futures will not be, but there are many possibilities. Most of the conversations in our space are just about climate change um, or uh, uh, social justice or whatever. And I think we have to look at the real choreography of what is possible. Instead of saying what we should do, we should start a lot more of us, some of you in this room, hopefully, talk about what will happen, what we will have to do. Um, so this is one scenario kind of in the middle of my distribution. Um, so one possible scenario is that a reduction of GDP in advanced economies is now very likely. When we remove low productivity credit with a shift towards lower productivity, more costly energy and resources, and with a return to current solar inputs, renewables. So I would imagine some sort of 30% drop in GDP in the next decade because of these things is now very plausible. A 30% drop in GDP is exactly what happened from 1929 to 1936 in this country. The good news, and there's quite a lot of good news here, um, which I'll get to a little bit later, is that energy and well-being, once your basic needs are met, are not very correlated. The average American uses 20 times the energy as the average Filipino. Most of them are poor, but the people around them are poor, and they replace that with community and games and, and sharing and, and working together. They have the same amount of very happy people in their population as our country does. We use 20 times as much. So once you have your basic needs met, there's very little um, human development improvement from more and more and more energy. How many of your parents in the 40s or 50s or whatever had a little television and a heater in their house and now we have an Xbox and three televisions and a microwave and computers and laptops and uh, you know, golf carts and whatever else. I mean, is that really making us happy? That's the good news in this. So the happiness index, people in Guatemala make $8,000 a year, in Kuwait almost 10 times that much, equal happiness. And there's many examples of this. So the choreography of how this fits together is I think we now have to solve our social and political issues. Sometime in the next decade, we're going to have to solve our economic credit growth issues. And if we navigate those, then we're going to have a chance to navigate these ecological, longer-term uh, pricing of ecosystems, et cetera, what do we aspire to as a species questions. So we are approaching a moment as a culture, as a community in the next decade that the things we talk about today, the decisions and things we work on are going to contribute to that moment. And I think that's the goal of, of why we're all here today. 
So, but why aren't we hearing more about this? So the reason I think, briefly, is that we live in a world where we have islands of expertise separated by oceans of non-science. There's a climate change expert, there's a renewable energy expert, there's a psychologist, there's a finance expert, there's a toxicology expert, there's an ecologist. They don't talk to each other with a comprehensive narrative on how everything fits together. The other thing is this story that I'm telling you is the perfect storm for the human brain to ignore or deny. It's complex. Michael had a few slides showing the head in the ground. It's complex, it's threatening, it's abstract, it's in the future. None of the key people on Sean Hannity or Rachel Maddow are talking about this stuff. I don't even really see it on Facebook. It's too big to get my head around, therefore, it's either not true or we're screwed, there's nothing we can do. But that's why more people aren't talking about it. So um, both of these narratives that I mentioned earlier share many of the, short, the same shortcomings, a lack of natural resources to complete the effort, the systemic inability of financial obligations to expand forever, current societal dissonance that will make these things difficult to implement. So as individuals, we can use intelligent foresight to imagine the future being different than the past. We can visualize how credit via this magic wand has allowed us to kick the can at a cost of a steeper economic decline in the future. As individuals, and I've met with the governor of a Western state, I've met with finance ministers, I've met with European parliamentarians, to a person, they understand the things that I'm saying. We have the possibility of growth, muddle through, which is zero to 2% growth was what we're doing now, or bend, which is a decline, but we hold together, or break, which is a Mad Max. This is kind of the odds that I see these. But as institutional representatives, all they can see is growth. Maybe muddle, like we'll get through it. The bend and the break scenarios are, are, are professionally, currently, impossible for these people to vocalize. Um, as managers, planners, CEOs, these type of futures remain in our social blind spots, not in our intellectual blind spots. Okay, so we need to plan for this future, and we need to inform what happens then, which direction our culture goes. But we're getting the physical and the psychological signals that this future will continue. But we have a scout team in this room that's aware of these things, that feels that this is at least somewhat right, and so we need to grow awareness of that and get bright pro-social people working on response to these things. So, given this context, what would an alien anthropologist, impartial, looking down on Earth, say about this situation? Well, the one thing he would say is, by 10 orders of magnitude, we are wrecking the oceans and the future climate and ecosystems of this lovely planet. That's one thing he would say, it would say. Another thing is, by several orders of magnitude, behaviorally, we are not carbon constrained. We're growth constrained and we're gonna elect populist politicians and give people in power that will give us what we want or what we had 10 years ago or what we think we want. So the combination of these two trends, we are living during the carbon pulse, this several hundred year period where we're living, the metabolism of our culture is based on extracting fossil carbon. But the carbon pulse has become a carbon trap because the same thing that is destroying the ecosystems is what we need to sustain our economies. So this is a paradox. Okay, what to do? 
I don't know what to do, but I'm gonna give you a list of suggestions that I talk to my students about, and hopefully, as the day wears on, we, you all will have some insights from this and some, some suggestions. This is some things I think, uh, we need to change the narrative. So this is the narrative. We are powerful, technology can overcome depletion. The truth is we are draining America first. That is what we're doing. And if we change that narrative, then, I mean, not to say America is better than other countries, but a wise country would print money and buy other people's oil and keep our oil in the ground for your grandchildren to do some cool stuff with in 2073. Okay, so we need to change the narrative about what is power, what is valuable, not only uh, energy and resources, but our ecosystems, etc. I think we need to inform via some blueprint that is advertised not to the general public because then it'll be debunked ahead of time, but key leaders around the world need to understand this dynamic where when this happens, we need to educate, plan, and implement a tax on non-renewable resources, not only carbon, but phosphorus and copper and other things, for when this credit event happens, for when we morph from a too-big-to-save situation, uh, too-big-to-fail to a too-big-to-save situation in, in the next decade. Simultaneously, when we add this big tax on carbon, because oil might be $10 a barrel at that point, we remove tax on human labor and all sorts of other creative, pro-social, pro-future, um, um, policies that we could never inject right now because the system is frozen. The political system is just left versus right with little marginal differences between them. We need a third rail discussion that incorporates this reality. We, we need to regain civil discourse, uh, trust in science, media, and our neighbors. Um, the challenges from this amoeba dynamic are nonpartisan. We're going to all be in this together. People in Bolinas and Marin County, left or right, we're all going to be in this together. And we need to educate and inspire humans to culturally extend the boundaries of our empathy. The real stock market is crashing. So we need a conversation, uh, uh, maybe akin to a religion, about the future. There's 2,600 emojis that people use on the phone. There's nothing to re represent the future. I came up with this little T, I'm having t-shirts made for my students, with a T with an arrow standing for tomorrow or time. We need a cultural uh, representation that people can get excited about the future because biologically, we care about the present. Um, we need earth truck imaginations and inventions. This is Elon Musk sending a Tesla into outer space like that's going to help our situation. What about the 7.7 .7 billion people that have no interest in going to Mars? So we need to plan for a great simplification but, and imagine investments that are appropriate to this scenario. So I have a top 10 list at the end of my semester. One of them is the top 10 technological inventions of humans. Okay, like soccer and things like that. Here are the top three, just for brevity. The bicycle, the most energy efficient discovery of humans. Number two, the story. We tell stories, we're a storytelling species. And the number one invention of humans of all time is the golden retriever. <laughs> and and what, do you, what do these things have in common is we get our evolved neurotransmitters, the same feelings our ancestors got with very little energy and material use. And that's the direction that I think we need to head. We need to differentiate between clever man and wise man. And so far we've been very, very clever. Uh, so how might we change these rules? 
Coordinate towards acquiring surplus. Well, we're going to have less surplus. Does that mean less coordination or more? We're going to follow cultural rules. Less unnecessary consumption, ceilings and floor to income, more wisdom, environmentalism, more status from things that are less financially linked. And we spend our surplus on gadgetry. 70% of our consumption in GDP in America is on, cons on consumption. We could change things to have a longer time horizon that are less dopamine and more a serotonin community longer term horizon. Okay, what to do real briefly, uh, philanthropy and institutions. If you have a billion dollar philanthropy endowment and you're paying 50 million or 40 million out every year, thinking that that billion is gonna be there uh, 30 years from now, you need to rethink. You need to spend down this capital so that it can be used on things that really are gonna make a difference. And the people in this room are the pro-social scout team for the future. Michael's working on these things. There are so many people that understand these things and care about them, but there's no vocation for them because the surplus isn't being directed to 10, 20, 50 years from now. It's all for things like immediate. So that needs to change. We need to imagine investments that are appropriate to the great simplification, appropriate to this line. We used to use our intelligent foresight to imagine this may not continue and put ourselves in this world. Citizens Climate Lobby, I have many friends in there. Uh, I really agree with their goals, but we maybe should start a citizens credit lobby to talk about the risk to our economies in case credit mechanism uh, is disrupted in the next decade. As a community, social capital wherever you live during this is going to be key. Meet 10 people that live within a half mile of you. Most people just get home and they turn on Netflix and you know, chicken wings or whatever, and they don't go talk to their neighbors because it's uncomfortable. Uh, imagine everyone in your community, including you, living on 30% less. I think that's very plausible in the next decade. And so what you're doing by imagining it ahead of time is you're uh, avoiding the immediate stress when it might happen because you've already kind of walked in the rain and, and you're okay. Um, imagine investments in your own life that are appropriate to this sort of scenario. Uh, I made this slide for my local uh, town, so uh, Walleye Pike is not necessarily uh, relevant to Marin County, but what is your community going to highlight? There will be some communities that when they hear about all this, they are going to respond with guns, gold, beans, and Bitcoin. But there's going to be other communities that really highlight protecting their natural environment, um, working together, having community leaders, growing local food, relocalizing supply chains, it's going to be different. There's not going to be a one-size-fits-all response. You guys have a leg up because you live in a place that is so beautiful, has lots of natural resources, and you already have this social ethic here that's way more than central Wisconsin, I can tell you that. We need facilitators between the environment and the economy, and right now we don't have so many of those. Uh, we need to consider localizing and regionalizing supply chains. The world is going to become a bigger place again. And we can't just get micro components from South Korea uh, or uh, South Africa. We might have to get them from Arizona or Vancouver um, as, as one example. We need to start local maker spaces instead of every, every person in town having a whole set of tools and a lawnmower and a snowblower. Well, not a snowblower here, but um, we need to like, figure out a way that people can use less and share and, and social capital is, is a beneficiary from that as well. Tithe to your place. You all live somewhere different. You need to really value and respect that place. This is two miles from my house in Mississippi River. 
this is where you all live. What is gonna be really precious and sacred to your backyard? Okay, what to do as an individual? I have a, just a very short list here. Um, these things aren't being talked about. So you need to think about how you might lead in your situation in the future. Not necessarily today, but prepare to take a leadership role because you're one of the few people that understands these things. Um, Joanna is going to talk about this, I expect, this afternoon. It's okay to grieve about this, about the loss of what we thought the world was, about the loss of the natural world and some of these opportunities, because in the grieving, you then have a direct conversation with yourself about what matters. And that directs your future behavior. Reflect on this. Don't dwell on it, but this is okay. Think for yourself. Avoid the consensus trance. There's so much propaganda out there that you have to use critical thinking skills to be, uh, make your own decisions about things. Use restraint. Don't just always fall into the agenda of the gene. Have some discipline to use restraint, not to save resources to save the planet, but to make yourself more resilient and flexible and to heal your brain from the constant 24-7 stimulation. Maybe you don't have the problem that my students do, but a lot of these young people are overwhelmed with everything and they're connected to their iPhone all the time. And I tell them, it's not your degree, it's not your major, it's not your GPA. The biggest asset you have is the health of your brain. Um, this is me, I'm also addicted to the internet because I get so many damn emails and, and everything. So I try to walk what I'm telling you, the talk. I did a, a 100 mile hike on the Appalachian Trail two years ago with my younger brother. There was no internet, so I was like shaking for the first two days, but it was awesome experience. So we need to re disconnect from, from energy use. We need to shift perspective from scarcity to abundance. We are all alive at one of the richest times in human history. The average American uses more resources and energy and wealth than Cleopatra did. Okay, so we end up comparing ourselves to the people that live next door instead of to our, uh, our ancestors or our descendants. This is a fantastically amazing time to be alive. So shift the perspective from one of, oh my God, I'm absolutely rich. I don't care that I don't have as much as that person, but I'm going to do this and enjoy and make a difference. Balance, this is a really scary time to be alive. So make sure and be kind to yourself and recharge yourself. For me, it works in nature with my dogs, but you have to have balance, otherwise you get burnt out. Simplify and, and avoid the rush. Um, if you can imagine some of the things that I'm saying are plausible, don't become dependent on really complicated monetarily or energetically uh, uh, intensive lifestyles. Once your basic needs are met, the best things in life are free. That is a truism. If we have health care and food and water and a roof over our heads, the best things in life are free. This is me reading a story to my uh, coon hound. She, she likes that. Make America good. So is America going to lead on this descent? Uh, I don't know. But instead of fairness, which may not be energetically, monetarily possible, we have to focus on kindness and empathy. Uh, in our own lives, and then that spreads. Learn, learn new skills. Some of the things we're being taught are maybe trivia given the next 20 or 30 years. Create your own tribe because who we are surrounded by is gonna have a huge impact on your experience of the next 20 or 30 years, much more than the physical surroundings. Um, be around people that share your ethics, your moral, your outlook that you enjoy. 
If you understand the biological concept of steep discount rates, the fact that our culture will not do anything meaningfully before a crisis, if you understand that, it, it's depressing, but it's also empowering because it suggests that, wow, that means it's up to me and my community to do some things ahead of time. Uh, and, and that's an opportunity. So we need to imagine this scenario uh, and, and do some efforts towards it and protect the animals and ecosystems in your place. Because if you don't, that's gonna be on the back burner. Finally, or close to finally, don't minimize your impact by consuming a little bit less. I mean, that's fine, and I think it's good personal hygiene to change your consumption patterns. But if you do that, you're just one eight billionth of the problem uh, a little bit, uh, you made it a little bit better. I instead think you should maximize your impact on the planet. Work to be effective at larger scales than your own personal uh, consumption. And that means in your tribe, the antidote to the amoeba is individuals and small groups because they don't f adhere to this superorganism dynamic. Individuals and small groups by strategizing on what to do about the future have always changed the world and they will change the world in the future. So what we're trying to do, this conversation is about changing the odds of the, what the events coming in the next decade. Humans live on a heliocentric world. We figured it out. Humans evolved and we figured it out. We're acting like an energy hungry superorganism, and we figured that out. So what we wanna do is inform this mitochondria energy cell of some new type of culture uh, that comes with this shift in the road, and I invite you all to play a role in this coming cultural evolution. Thank you. You've been listening to a TNS presentation of the keynote address given by Nate Hagens at the 2019 Resilience Gathering at Commonweal. Thank you for listening to TNS, the new school at Commonweal. The new school at Commonweal is directed by Michael Lerner. Our program coordinator is Kara Epstein. Our audio producer is Ken Adams, and our theme music is by Suzanne Ciani. Visit us online at tns.commonweal.org. That's tns.commonweal.org. Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. You can also find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Facebook, YouTube, and Vimeo. Thanks for listening. <laughs>